0: If you have your Bibles with you, and we encourage you to bring Bibles to church these days, turn to the book of Luke, and we're going to go ahead another two verses. We've been doing this almost for, I guess, six months now, and we've gotten through almost 90 verses. Uh, This is what we do at Woodland Hills Church. If you're visiting, we believe in passionate worship, but then also passionate worshiping God with our minds. And so we just, just break open the word and go verse by verse and just ask the question, What does the Lord have us to learn? It's not about eloquence. It's not about entertainment. It's just about seriously engaging with the Word of God. And the goal is always to walk out of here more kingdomized than you were when you came. Because the purpose of everything is to become kingdom people, right? So we're looking at the book of Luke, chapter 2. And we're going to read two verses today, verse 34 and 35. And I want to entitle this message, Offensive Good News. Be prepared to be offended. This is Offensive Good News. I could entitle this just as well, Repent. Because that's what the message is about. And when you're called to repent, you have the possibility of being offended. Here's what the text says. You'll recall that Mary and Joseph are in the temple. Uh, They meet Simeon, who was led there by the Holy Spirit. And Simeon's kind of praying and prophesying over them. And then in the course of doing this, it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary. So now he's speaking specifically to Mary. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. He's also destined to be a sign that will be spoken against. There's a connotation of hostility there. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed or exposed. The the rebelliousness of some hearts is going to be exposed. And then, in a very somber tone, Simeon says to Mary, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Interesting. Now I'm going to speak about that last phrase next week. And a soul will pierce your own soul too. This morning I want to talk about Jesus causing the fall of many and how he'll be a sign that will be spoken against. I want us to meditate on that. As I do it, I'd like us to use this opportunity where we come together to pray for this message and also to pray for one another. So one last time, would you stand? And would you uh, just grab the hand of the person to your right and to your left? Hopefully you know their name by now. And just in your heart and in your mind, agree with me for the person on your right and on your left as I'm praying this prayer. God has given us a unique authority as kingdom people to change the world through the power of prayer. He's just wired it such that when we talk to him, power is released from heaven. So we want to use that to the advantage of the person on our right and the person on our left. So just uh, pray with me here. Father, we just thank you for calling us to be your kingdom people and empowering us through the power of prayer to change the world. We thank you, Lord God, that that our prayers are powerful and effective. Your word says so. And so, Lord, with that faith, we pray for the person on our right whose hand we're holding. We just pray outrageous blessings on them. Father, release power from heaven on their behalf right now. We pray, Lord God, that you'd open up their mind and open up their heart to receive the word this morning. We pray, Lord, that wherever they're at in relationship with you, we pray that this person on our right would be moved to a closer relationship with you through this word. Lord, let your kingdom be built further in their heart and mind this morning than it was when they came here, Lord God. We pray for their relationships, Lord God. We pray that you'd bring kingdom peace and forgiveness. To all their relationships. We pray, Lord God, prosperity on their finances, that they might be a blessing to others, Lord. Lord. Bless them in Jesus' name. And now we pray for the person on our left. Lord, we agree with you that this person has unsurpassable worth, and we ascribe to them unsurpassable worth because you died for them and paid an unsurpassable price for them. We pray, Lord God, that you'd open up their hearts and minds to receive your word here this morning, that, Lord God, it would find fertile soil. We pray, Lord God, that wherever they're at in their relationship with you, that you would use this message to draw them closer to you and bring the kingdom more thoroughly in their heart and mind. We pray for their relationships, Lord God. Bring your kingdom love. Bring your kingdom peace. Bring your kingdom forgiveness to all of their relationships. We pray prosperity on their, on their health. We pray a blessing on their finances, that they might be a blessing to the kingdom and a blessing to others, Lord. Lord, we together right now want to use our power as kingdom kids on behalf of Iraq. And we want to pray, Lord God, peace for that country, Lord. Uh, in it's such, it's such political turmoil on the verge of civil war. And we just, Lord God, want to use the influence you've given us on behalf of the Iraqi people, Lord God. Bring peace to that nation, Lord God. Bring healing to that nation. There's such diabolical unforgiveness and hatred and violence there. And innocent lives are every day being wasted. Lord, bring your peace. Let, it, let your will be done in Iraq as it is in heaven. And now, Lord, as your word is going forward, we just pray that you'd give it an authority that comes from from you, not from any human being. Make make your word come alive. Confront us, convict us, transform us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. God bless you. Hick, you can have a seat. What you need to know is that the person on your right and the person on your left, you have made a difference in their life. Um, and, uh, because, because the prayer, the prayer is powerful and effective. Their life will be more kingdomized because of that. That's why prayer is so important. Okay, offensive good news. You know, we've been at the book of Luke here for five or six months, and it has, I think we'd all agree, been a, uh, real good book, a real nice book, uh, a real happy book. It's had a lot of good news. You know, it, it's just been real positive. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, the angels have been announcing stuff and, and women who weren't supposed to be able to have babies are having babies and, and, and John the Baptist comes into the world and said that he'll turn the, the hearts of the parents to the kids and, and, and Jesus is going to come, he's going to bring peace, he's going to bring joy, he's going to bring love, he's going to restore Israel, he's going to transform the world and there's all this wonderful, wonderful good news and it's been great. But now, all of a sudden, in this narrative as it's going forward, we hit this passage... And there's a very somber, even ominous tone to it, isn't there? Jesus will not only cause many to rise, but he's going to cause many to fall. And he's not just going to be something that people love and adore. He'll be a sign that will be spoken against. There'll be hostility towards him. It's not apparently all good news. It could be good news to everybody, but what this prophecy is saying is that it won't be good news to everybody. In fact, there's a downside to the good news. As hearts are revealed and exposed, we'll see that there are many whose hearts are set against Jesus. Jesus will divide those who rise from those uh, who fall. There'll be an offensive edge to Jesus. Now, we would wish that that wasn't so especially because we're in Minnesota and everyone believes in Minnesota nice. We would like it to be nice, wouldn't we? I would. I, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, if it was like Christmas all the time? You know, the gospel you get at Christmas where you know, Jesus just helps us love one another and I'm okay and you're okay and we're just all going to get along and got, he just, you know, it's, it's a fluffy gospel. It's all about nice. It's all about flowers. It's all about wonder. It's just great. That'd be wonderful. But it's not true. The real Jesus... Yes, he brings outrageous good news, but there's a downside to it, and this passage begins to get us in on that downside. There's an offensive dimension to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ticks some people off. He did back then, and he's still doing it today. He especially ticks off religious people. He did it all the time. That's why he says often when he goes preaching throughout the Gospels, blessed are those who aren't offended in me. And the Gospels record several times saying that people walked away from Jesus, and it was always the religious people, uh, and they were offended by him. How dare he say that? There's an offensive dimension to the Gospel. Jesus Christ, he unites people who are like-minded, but he also divides people who aren't. He says in one passage, I haven't come to bring peace on earth. I've come to bring division. Uh, it's it's going to divide people. Between those who accept me, those who don't accept me, those who rise, those who fall, those who are offended and those who repent, there'll be a division that is there. There's an offensive dimension to the gospel. And the first thing we've got to get from this passage if we don't get anything else is this. It means that if we're preaching the true gospel... There will always be, at least at times, at least to some, an offensive dimension to it. There'll be the possibility of offending people. Because if we're preaching the true gospel, it confronts everything in our life. If we're preaching the true gospel, it means that some things we hold near and dear to us might have to go. If we're preaching the true gospel, it just might turn our world upside down. If we're preaching the true gospel, it might call into question some fundamental assumptions, some fundamental values, some fundamental behaviors we've always just assumed were okay. If we're preaching the true gospel, some things we just regard to be pure common American sense might be called into question. If we're preaching the, the true gospel, it calls for a radical decision where every aspect of our life has to be laid bare. If we're preaching the true gospel, it either makes people change or it forces them to get angry and walk out mad. There's an offensive dimension if we're preaching the true gospel. And our job, my job here this morning, and every time I preach, and every preacher's job when they're behind the pulpit of Woodland Hills Church is to preach the true gospel which means part of my job is to tick you off. But take consolation in the fact that I tick myself off. I mean, this time, you know, it confronts me as well. Uh, part of the job is to be willing to offend people, which means they might walk away. But see, here's the thing. As a number of, of social, uh, Christian social commentators have, have made known, One of the greatest tragedies in modern Christianity, especially in the West, is that it has, to a large degree, lost its ability to offend people. Uh, The gospel we preach is a very inoffensive gospel. And there are multitudes of preachers who are afraid of offending people, of losing parts of their congregation. Uh, Now, part of the reason for this, a major part of the reason, is that... uh, The consumer mindset of our culture has really made inroads into the thinking of the church. With the consumer mindset, Americans see themselves as consumers, and their job is to purchase, and and a business's job is to give them the product that they want to purchase and to give it as good as possible. And so it's, it's, it's almost inevitable that in America you'll have a lot of consumeristic thinking uh, going on with regard to church. People see church the way they'd see Walmart and Target and Burger King and McDonald's. They see it as, as a place where you go and you purchase, at as cheapest price as possible, a religious product that's supposed to make you feel better or enhance your life in certain ways. So they, they assess churches that way. And if they can't get what they want from one church, then they'll go to a different church. They shop for churches the way they shop for fast foods and clothing. And preachers, if they buy into that mindset, the consumeristic mindset, then they think it's their job to do what Target and Walmart is trying to do, and that is you want to get as many customers as possible and keep as many customers as possible. And if that's your modus operandi, then the last thing you're ever going to do is offend people. Because if you offend them, they can very quickly go somewhere else and get the product at a cheaper price where they don't have to be offended. What you want to do if you're in a consumer mindset is to make people feel comfortable, as, as comfortable as possible, to confirm what, what they already think. And if you've got to confront anything, then, then you've got to tiptoe around it, do it as nice as possible, throw as many flowers as possible, because you don't want to offend people, because you don't want to lose customers, otherwise you'll lose the business. And if you're thinking with a consumerist mindset, then you have the same kind of criteria for success that Walmart or Target or Burger King or McDonald's has. And whoever has the most customers is doing the best job. Whoever keeps the most customers is doing the best job. Whoever makes people the most comfortable is doing the best job. But see, from a kingdom perspective, that's not success, that's absolute failure. Uh, The tragedy is that. If you lose the offensive dimension of the gospel that will uh, challenge people to make a radical decision about fundamental things in their life, if you lose the radical dimension of the gospel, then you lose the power to change people. People will leave the same way they came because you haven't confronted anything in their life. But see, the only thing that matters is people being changed. The only thing that matters is us growing to be more and more increasingly kingdom people. When, when you, when, when you, when the minute you start thinking that your job is to you know, just make people more comfortable, then, then your, your, your gospel has lost much of its power to radically confront and alter and transform people's lives. But that's the one thing that matters. Jesus never worried about who was showing up and who wasn't showing up. What he worried about is, am I saying what the Father wants me to say? And sometimes there was a lot of crowds that were there and sometimes all the crowds went away. That didn't bother Jesus. What mattered was authenticity. Are we saying it straight? Are we saying the truth? So if at any time Wooden Hills ever starts to adjust what we stand for and what we proclaim and how we live, if we ever start to adjust that, For the sake of popularity, for the sake of keeping customers, for the sake of who's attending or who's not attending, if we ever start doing that, someone do the kingdom of God a great favor and shut us down, because that's not what it's about. What it's about, what it's about is being transformed. What it's about is us day by day, growing in Christ-likeness, letting the DNA of Calvary further infiltrate our hearts and our minds and our lifestyles and everything that we're about and growing in Christ-likeness. And if we ever stop doing that, we are in serious trouble. The world might count bigness and and ornateness as a success, but from a kingdom perspective, the only thing that is success is authenticity and people growing in authenticity. We've got to say it straight. And sometimes that means you gotta confront, and sometimes it means you gotta offend. Now let me balance this, because everything's gotta be balanced. That doesn't mean that being virtu- that, that being offensive is virtuous. Being offensive for being off- for offensive's sake, there's nothing virtuous about that, because you could just be rude. And there are people who Christianize rudeness, and they feel righteous for it, and they're sincere. But they really see the, uh, the, the, the harm of the watered-down, non-offensive gospel. So then they go out of the way just to be rude. There's a style of evangelism out there that I think is just rude where you think it's your job to, to go into people's lives who haven't invited you in and you start you think it's your job to kind of moralistically point out sins in their life and, and, and it comes across as sort of you being more righteous than them and you're looking for a dust particle in their life when you've got two-by-fours in your own uh, you know, eyes and, 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 and whatnot. Um, There's a time and place for everything. There's a time when we're supposed to speak the truth in love in a way that has the potential to offend people and may cause them to fall. Uh, Two contexts would be this. Here, when we come together, my assumption is, our assumption is that when people come to this gathering, a large gathering, the weekend event of Woodland Hills Church... You're here because, among other things, you want to hear the word. And our job is to say the word straight. To this degree, you've invited us in on your life. You're free to walk out. Some do sometimes. Uh, If You're free never to come back. But our job is just to say it straight. You showed up here, our job is to say it straight. And that might offend you. It frequently offends people. And we don't feel bad about that. If the offense comes because we're we're preaching the gospel straight. The other context in which we are to speak the truth in love and risk the possibility of offense is in small group contexts. This is the primary unit of Christianity. In our covenant groups or with friends who know you well. Because they're part of what we do in small groups, and this is why they're so valuable, is that I've got people in my life who know me and love me, and they know that I know them and love them. And, and I've invited them to speak into my life, and they've invited me to speak into their life. And I know what I'm talking about because I know them, and they know that I'm not, I'm not judging them or feeling righteous, you know, more righteous than them. They know I just am concerned about what I'm seeing, and so I say it straight, and they might get offended. Or they say it's straight to me, and I might get offended. They might say, Greg, you know, uh, you don't realize this, and we love you, but, but you know, when you do this, it really casts, it really doesn't seem honoring to your wife. And there's a part of me that wants to go, what? Get out of here. How dare you? <laughs> but see, we're all, this is why community is so important. We've all got blind spots. And I might have a blind spot. And we're the bride and we're supposed to be making ourselves ready for the groom who's returning and so Even though part of me doesn't want to hear this, the deeper part of me, the kingdom part of me, wants to hear that because I want to know about the weak areas of my life so that I can adjust them and and live a more kingdom life. In small groups and in the large gathering here, it's appropriate. Going to places where no one's invited you, speaking to people into their lives in ways that they have invited you, that can just come across as rude. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is never rude, and the one thing we're supposed to be known for is love. But when, when in the right context... We need to say it straight. And if you say it straight and you're preaching the real gospel, there may be times where people get offended because it, it, it can call into question fundamental assumptions about our life. Now, how is it that the good news could possibly be offensive? Let's ask that question. Because the good news is good. Who could be offended by that? The good news is about God becoming a human being out of his love for us. The good news is about how we can be forgiven all of our sins. The good news is about how it can all be wiped clean and we can have a restored relationship with God. The good news is that he wants to fill us with his Holy Spirit and he can give us a joy the world can't give us and a peace the world can't give us and a powerful living that the world can't give us. And the good news is about how we'll reign forever in eternity with him. What could be offensive about that? And even if a person didn't agree with it, What could be offensive about that? It's nice! I can see a person saying, gosh, I wish that was true, I just don't happen to believe that it is true. But what is offensive about that? See the question? Now if that is a question for us, I think this is why. We tend to define the kingdom, or the gospel, or Christianity, or salvation, all those terms, we tend to define them in terms of a belief system. Uh, To be a Christian means you believe X, Y, and Z. You believe in Jesus, you believe in the Bible, you believe in, you know, it depends on what version of Christianity you're given. There may be three things you've got to believe or 13 things you've got to believe, whatever. Uh, But to be a Christian means you believe certain things. To be a kingdom person, to be saved, means you believe X, Y, and Z. From a New Testament perspective, to be a kingdom person isn't primarily about what you believe. Now, it does involve certain beliefs, but it's not primarily about the beliefs. It's rather primarily about the lifestyle that flows from those beliefs. To be a kingdom person is not first and foremost to be a person who believes that God is king. Yes, it does. You certainly believe that. But to, that's not what makes you a kingdom person. A kingdom, to be a kingdom person means you live with God as king. See the difference? There's a world difference between believing that God is king and living your life with God as king believing that Jesus is Lord and living your life with Jesus as Lord. The kingdom is primarily about a lifestyle, and that's where it can start to be offensive because we're comfortable in our lifestyles. And whenever someone starts to confront something about our lifestyle that could be near and dear to us, there's a part of us that wants to clutch and goes, mine, my precious, and don't you start going there. The offensive part of the gospel is that it can disrupt our lives. That's where. If Jesus had just come, giving a few new insights, I don't think he would have been very scandalous. There's nothing that radical about that. In fact, in first-century Judaism, we know from history, they weren't that uptight about particular beliefs. There's a lot of room for flexibility. There's a lot of diversity of beliefs within Judaism, and they had different schools of thought or whatever. But but you know, they weren't that that uptight about that kind of stuff. If Jesus had come and just kind of given a new insight here and a new insight there. I I don't think it would have caused a scandal. In fact, I think a lot of people would have been totally okay with Jesus, even with some of his outrageous claims. In fact, they would have really liked Jesus with his miracle-working power. Uh, They would have gladly embraced him if he would simply have gotten along with their agenda. I'm fine with Jesus, they would have said. In fact, I I, I like to use his his miracle-working power, despite some of his wild claims about being a son of God, whatever. Fine, I'll accept that if he'll use that miracle-working power to further my agenda. I'm fine with Jesus, Joe. Don't, don't, just don't start upsetting my lifestyle. I'm fine with Jesus. Just don't start upsetting my, my assumption of my nationalistic superiority. In the first century, they would have been fine with Jesus. Just don't start upsetting uh, my assumption about my religious superiority or the religious hierarchy I'm a part of. I'm fine with Jesus. Just don't start upsetting my politics. I'm fine with Jesus. Just don't get in on my, my economic plan. They had their own agendas, and if Jesus would have simply given a few new truths and used his miracle power to further their agendas, man, he would have been all the most popular guy in the world. That's why they were always trying to get him to do that. Same thing today. I think most people are fine with Jesus, so long as he doesn't upset their lifestyle. Hey, I'm fine with Jesus. Uh, Just uh, don't start tampering with my American lifestyle. I'm okay with Jesus. I'll even confess he's the son of God and all that. Just tell me what I'm supposed to believe. Just don't start, you know, confronting my assumption of nationalistic superiority or my assumption of my religious superiority or don't start encroaching on, on the way I treat people. I'm fine with Jesus. Just stay away from my wallet, all right? I'm fine with Jesus. Just don't, just, just, you know, don't start asking too much of me. People are fine with Jesus as long as Jesus doesn't ask too much of them. And that's why you can find a lot of Jesuses out there that do just that. But the real Jesus, folks, the real Jesus demands everything of us. The real Jesus, he's he's all about your life, how you live it, uh, how you treat people. Uh, what your value system is. The real Jesus has this offensive edge because he, to make him Lord of your life means you have to be willing to put everything, even the most near and dear common sense assumptions that you make uh, as a person in your particular culture, all those things have to be put on the table and offered up to him. The, what the real Jesus says here is this, I've got outrageously good news for you, uh, better than you can possibly imagine. But to enter in on this good news, to enter in on the dome in which God is king, the kingdom of God, to enter in on that, you've got to do it according to my plan. Don't try to fit me into your plan. You've got to do it according to my agenda. Don't try to fit me in on your agenda. You've got to do it according to my lifestyle. Don't try to fit me in on your lifestyle. That's what it means to make Jesus Lord of our life. As he reveals things in our life that aren't consistent with the kingdom of God, he calls us to turn from that. He, he, he forces a radical decision in our life over and over and over again to make him Lord of our life. And that's where the potential of offense comes. It's about lifestyle, not just mere beliefs. This element of radical decision that the gospel calls us to over and over again the word that's used in the bible over and over but it's very rarely used today because why? it's offensive. it doesn't win many customers. but it's the word repent. 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 All right. all right. all right, all right. now the word repent. the 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 you find in the gospels that when when whenever the in fact even in the book of acts and the epistles when the kingdom of god is preached it's always preceded with the word repent. For example, Jesus says, this summarizes everything he was about in Matthew chapter 4. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because the dome in which God is king is coming to this earth, there's this new revolutionary movement that started. Jesus embodied it. Because the dome in which God is king has come to this earth, you need to change. You need to repent. The precondition for getting in on kingdom life is that you're willing to turn around. Now, the word repent is the Greek word metanoia, and it literally means to turn around, to do an about-face. We know it was used in the military when the commander would uh, want the military to do an about-face. Our our guys go, about-face, or attach, hut, or whatever they do. I've never been in the military, but that's when you turn around, and you march in the other direction, Okay. Well, what they did in the ancient world is that the, the commander would say, matanoia, boom, you didn't turn around. Or we would translate it, soldiers, repent, boom. And now you march in a different direction. That's what the word means. God calls us to stop going in the direction we're going and to go in a different direction. Now there's some confusion about this word repentance. We live in this psychoanalytic age where we psychologize everything, so some people sort of psychologize this word. And they think the they equate the word repentance with remorse. And they think that to repent of your sins means you feel remorseful for them. You feel sorrow. You feel grief. There's got to be tears. I heard on a Christian radio station several months ago a person saying that if you didn't shed tears when you repented and gave your life to Jesus, I questioned the authenticity of, of your conversion if you didn't weep over your sins, I question the authenticity of your, your, your salvation. And now I'm thinking there's a million people out there who are genuinely kingdom people, but now they're going to start living in insecurity because they didn't shed tears when they came to the Lord. Look at uh, Your ability to see the full gravity of sin is a product of spiritual growth. Uh, the closer you get to God, the more you realize how, how damaging and wrong and, and painful the sin is. And so the closer you get to God, the more you cry over those things. But at the beginning, many times, if not most of the time, we don't feel the full gravity of our sins. And the word repentance has nothing to do with your emotions. The word repentance is just, it just means a decision to turn and go in a different way. A person could be, and many people are like this, All of a sudden, you realize that you have been living in a way that was sinful. It was missing the mark, which is the definition of sin in the Bible. Um, And uh, you don't feel any remorse over it. In fact, you maybe don't quite understand why it's wrong. But for other reasons, you believe the Bible's true. You believe Jesus Christ is Lord. So you make a decision to stop doing it. You don't feel any remorse over it. Now, maybe in five years, you will. You look back and think, how could I ever not have felt sorry for that? But that's, that's genuine repentance. That's all God asks of us. He doesn't ask us to feel some emotion. He just says, when I call on you, when I reveal to you an area of your life where you're walking in the wrong direction, I want you to turn, to walk the other d- direction. That is what the word repentance means. It's a call for a radical decision. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Sometimes people think this way, that there's two groups of people in the world, those who have repented and those who haven't. Like, I repented 32 years ago, so now I'm done with it. Well, I'll say more about this next week, but it doesn't work like that. Repentance is an ongoing attitude we cultivate in our life. Because whether you know it or not, there are areas of your life, I can almost guarantee you, where you're walking in a direction that's not consistent with God being king. And there come a time where God wakes you up to the reality that you're walking in a way that's not consistent with him being king. And he says, dude, I want you to stop walking that way and now come into alignment with my lordship over your life. And now you have a decision to make. Part of you, the flesh part, says, no, mine. And you want to hang on to it. And you can get offensive. You can get mad. You can get mad at the person who maybe pointed it out to you. Or what we sometimes do is we come up with clever rationalizations to get around it. Or you can do what the gospel calls us to do, and that is to repent, to turn around and start walking in a different direction. And it can look a million different ways because there's a million different ways that you can be walking in the wrong direction. Some people here would have, would have this kind of a testimony. I used to walk in this direction. I I didn't really know that I was doing this, but I used to get life. I used to feel worth and value by the fact that I believed that I believed all the right things. I believed all the right religious things. I believed all the right political things, and I contrasted myself with all those others who got it wrong. That was a source of life to me, and I thought it was okay. In fact, I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. And then one day, all of a sudden, for whatever reasons, God got a hold of me, God confronted me, God revealed to me the error of my ways, and I had a real important decision to make. And so I made the decision to turn around. I repented. And now I'm walking in a new direction where I get my life from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ alone so I don't need to be trying to suck a, mortar, a little bit of worth out of the rightness of my beliefs, whether they're political or whatever. I, I I've, I've repented of my old ways of doing things and now I don't put my trust in my opinions on politics or my opinions on doctrine. I don't put my trust in government. I certainly don't put my trust in any religion. I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I have repented of my religious and political idolatry. That's what it looks like what it looks like some people here might have this testimony i used to walk in this way i just thought it was what you're supposed to do i thought this is what christianity was but I was always contrasting myself with other people, you know, and I would always, at least in my own mind, be thankful that I'm not like that loser over there or I'm not like that, that overweight person over there. Or I'm not like that liberal over there. Or I'm not like that gay person over there. or I'm not like that religious person over there. Uh, you know, and I just felt good about that. That's how I really got worth to myself. And I was fine with that until one day God stopped me in my tracks. Maybe it was through a message or through a song or whatever and revealed to me the error of that way and I had a decision to make. So I turned around and I made God King Lord over that area of my life and now I'm walking in a new way where I realize that I'm a sinner. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm no better than anybody else. I'm saved by grace just like everybody else and I got no business looking for dust particles when I got two by fours in my own life and I got my life from Jesus Christ so I don't need to be getting up by contrasting myself with others. There are some who maybe have this testimony. I was walking in the typical kind of American way of life where I thought the main thing in life was just to climb the American ladder of success and build up a nice bank account and get the bigger house and get the faster car and, and just be a somebody. That's, that's, that's just the value I assumed. And I was fine with that till one day God woke me up and showed me that there's no life in that at all. And I had a very important decision to make because I was really good at what I was doing but he called me to turn around, and I had to repent. And I made God Lord over that area of my life, Lord over my core values and over my finances, and now I'm walking in a new way, and God's cultivating in me a heart where I care about the poor, and so I share what I earn with the poor, and I care about the kingdom, so I share what I earn with the kingdom, and I no longer get life by the accumulation of things. I get life from Jesus Christ alone. There are some people here who maybe have uh, this testimony. You're walking the normal American cultural assumption that if it feels good, it can't be wrong. It's a demonic lie that's out there. I'm walking in this way of life where I just used people for sexual gratification. I thought that's just what you do. And I was okay with that. And then one day, all of a sudden, God showed me that that is not consistent with the kingdom, and I had a very important decision to make. And there's a part of me that fought that. How dare you encroach on my privacy? But God is the Lord of my privacy, and I had to make a decision. So I turned around, and I now have committed my life to honoring God by how I treat my own body and how I treat the body of others that God has made. And so I have repented of my sexual immorality. There are some people who maybe have this testimony. I was walking in the normal cultural assumptions that it's okay to be violent if it's ever to your advantage to be violent. I just assumed that that's the way things go. And one day God woke me up to that, and I saw how inconsistent that was with the kingdom. So I turned around, metanoia, repentance, and I made God Lord over that area of my life. And now I'm committed to loving my enemies and blessing those who persecute me and even doing good to the ones who are being mean to me and to never retaliate but to always return evil with good. I repented of my old violence. There are some here who would have this testimony. I was walking in a way where I used to always talk about people, talk behind their back. I guess it made me feel good when I made other people look small. It was a pathetic way of getting worth, but that's what I did. In fact, I found a lot of Christians did that, so I thought there's nothing really wrong with that. And then one day, God just confronted me with that. And showed me that that's inconsistent with living with the kingdom and I had a very important decision to make And so I turned around to walk in the other direction and now I've committed To using my tongue to bless people rather than curse people I've committed to honoring the verse. There's a verse in the Bible that says Never speak evil of anyone And so I'm not going to speak evil of anyone else And I don't need to because I get my life from Jesus Christ So I don't need to be cutting other people down to try to suck a little mor- mor- uh, a morsel of worth out of that there are some here who would have the, the uh, testimony this way. I was walking in the way of life, t- the typical American way of life, never really called it into question, but I was living for my own convenience. And it's just a lot more convenient to do life when you hang out with people who look like you, and you hang out with people who think like you, and you hang out with people that, that, that you know, share your skin color, and you hang out with people who share your culture, and you hang out with people who share your class. In fact, I used to look down on people of lower classes, or I used to judge people of upper classes. And then one day, God just kind of confronted me. And I had a very important decision to make. He showed me that that's not the kingdom way of living. And so I had to do a turnaround. I repented, and now I'm cultivating the kind of life where I, I, I know that I'm not living just for my own convenience, but rather I want my life to manifest the kingdom of God, which is multi-ethnic, multi-cultural, multi-racial, and has no idea about a class whatsoever. And so I've become a, a person who well, uh, intentionally strategizes to build bridge to other people, rather than living in the walls that I inherit from our culture. That's what repentance looks like. Finally, there are maybe some here who would say this. I was walking in a way of life where I just was negative and I was cynical and I saw the worst in everything and I saw the worst in everybody. That's just kind of how my mind went. I thought the entire world is stupid. People are stupid. They get what they deserve. And I was just a negative person. And then one day, God confronted me and said, that's not consistent with the kingdom. He calls on me to change, to turn around. And so I had a decision to make and I turned. And now I'm trusting in the promises of God and the promises of God say that in the end, God wins. So there's, there, there, there's, there's no room for negativity here. There's room for optimism. The kingdom will last forever and ever. And now I've committed my life, as the Bible commands me to do in 1 Corinthians 13, to see the best and to hope for the best and to believe the best about everybody. And I'm walking in this kind of optimism. Oh, there are times sometimes when I fall down and, and, and go in my old ways of thinking, but the Holy Spirit's always there to remind me that I'm walking in a new way of life. It takes a thousand different forms, but this is what repentance is. You're, God wakes you up to something in your life life calls on you to make a decision. And that's where you either are going to rise or you're going to fall. You either get offended and hold on to your old way of doing things, or you repent and change and start cultivating a new way of life. Now, repentance, as I said, is not about remorse. It's just a decision that we make. It's not a one-time thing. It's also not, it's not a pledge that you'll never fail because you probably will fail. And it's not a, a pledge of your self-will that you're going to like valiantly keep a New Year's resolution. I declare I'm not going to do this. Because you know what? If it's really authentic kingdom, you can't possibly do it on your own. But fortunately, you don't have to do it on your own because the Holy Spirit is there to empower you, to accomplish things you never dreamed you could accomplish. What repentance is is simply saying, God, with your help, I'll cultivate a new lifestyle. It's not saying I've arrived at a certain place. You're simply saying I'm going to go in a new direction. So my question to you is this. Is there an area in your life? And probably more accurately, I should put it like this. Not is there, but what is the area of your life that God's calling you to repent of? It may be a sin that is going on, or it may just be a a way of thinking, an attitude you have, a behavior that you have, you know, some aspect of your life that you've always assumed is okay. But right now, the Holy Spirit is moving and waking you up, and saying, it's time to, you've fought me too long on this. Turn, turn. Every area we hang on to after God calls us to turn is bondage and blocks the full life of the kingdom in our life. Every area we surrender to unleashes a new dimension of the kingdom in our life. You'll never, as hard as it is, you'll never regret repenting. It's hard in the moment, but it unleashes life. Close your eyes. And just pray for a moment. Listen for a moment as the Holy Spirit will reveal to you an area He wants you to turn from. With every eye closed, if there's an area that you're aware of that God's calling you to change and you're willing now to say, not that you'll succeed perfectly, Not that you're able to do it on your own, but you're willing to say, I surrender that area to you, Lord, and I commit to walking in your way. Just before you and God, with every eye closed, just raise your hand as a sign before God. Amen. Holy Spirit, you see our hearts. I pray you'd seal this commitment on behalf of all of us. We want to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Seal it, Lord. Seal it, Lord. Can we all stand? Can we sing that make us holy and new? Uh, and Let's sing this song as a pledge. As we're singing it, it, prayer team, would you come up here? If you have any need you want to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and get that prayer need met. If you want to just come forward here and kneel as God's working in your life and you're making this commitment or you're struggling with God, it's okay to fight with God like Jacob. And this is the time to do it. Come forward and, and just feel free to kneel here. If you this morning have surrendered your life for the first time to Christ, your repentance is turning from your self-centered living to make Him Lord of your life. Over here to my right and your left, there's a table, and a person up here would love to explain to you what's involved in that. So if you want to come forward kneel and pray, uh, you can do that. Um, if you have kids, please get the kids first and then come back here, and you can spend some time at the altar. Let's just sing uh, this, this last course as our closing prayer and commitment to the Lord. Make us holy and pure. Lord, as we go out of here, help us to have repentant hearts that turn from ways that are not consistent with your lordship. Empower us to live in the kingdom with you as Lord in every area. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go out and build the kingdom. Amen.